Hello everybody, this is my micro, microbiology uh, dental hygiene board review. So in all my books, it's like really close to infection control, so we'll be hitting on infection control next. Okay, so let's get started. I think I'm mostly going to be reading from student RDH when it comes to micro. Um, the program at my school was not really the greatest, so I typically have, I have one page of micro notes where student RDH is, uh, there's a lot more material on that, and then we'll hit the Chicago book. So, microbiology. Here's an overview and some definitions. Um, it is the study of algae, bacteria, fungi, pri prions, protozoa, and viruses. Um, bacteria are the simplest of creatures that are considered alive. They lack membrane-bound nucleus and other internal structures, and they are therefore ranked among the unicellular life forms called prokaryotes. The next one is virus. Virus is a small microorganism that requires a host to inject its RNA or DNA in to reproduce. Um, they're not planet, or plants, animals, or prokaryote bacteria. They are placed in their own kingdom. Next is fungus. Can be mold, mushrooms, yeast, etc. They are everywhere in very large numbers in the soil, air, human body, etc. And they reproduce by forming vast quantities or spores. And then lastly is the protozoa. This is a group of mostly motile unicellular eukaryotic organisms. Oral microbiology is the study of the microorganisms in the oral cavity and their interaction with the host. And bacteria is present in all parts of the body. Cheek, palate, lips, tongue, teeth, gingiva, bone, etc. Bacterial colonies in the oral cavity. Dental plaque. Dental plaque is also called dental biofilm. It's a dense, non-mineralized community of bacterial colonies. It's attached to moist surfaces in the oral cavity, including teeth, calculus, and restorations. Microorganisms produce a gel-like matrix called the slime layer, which protects the microbial colony from antibiotics, antimicrobials, and the body's immune system. Um, now we'll talk about the dental calculus. It's also called tartar. It's mineralized dental plaque. Can attach to teeth, restorations, implants, and dental appliances. Calcium and phosphate cause mineralization within the saliva. Calcium and phosphate. This is very important. Calcium and phosphate is what causes the mineralization within the saliva. 70 to 90% of dental calculus is composed of inorganic material, mostly calcium phosphate. So dental calculus, calcium phosphate. All calculus is covered by plaque as the pores in the calculus serve as a reservoir for bacteria and endotoxins. 
Materia Alba. This is the soft deposit resembling cottage cheese that can be brushed off. It consists of bacteria, food debris, and other organic or inorganic materials. Now we'll talk about the formation of dental plaque, which I feel like is really important and probably will be on boards. The pellicle formation is a thin coating of saliva protein called pellicle that attaches to the tooth surface, including restorations and dental calculus, within minutes after a professional cleaning. The pellicle layer protects the enamel from acidic activity. Its double-sided adhesive property facilitates the attachment of bacteria to the tooth surface, not visible, not visible with disclosing agent. Next, you have, after the pellicle is formed, you have the initial, initial attachment of bacteria to the pellicle. Bacteria attach to the outer surface of the pellicle with the help of hair-like structures called fembriae, and they form microcolonies on the surface. A bacterial colony is composed of many different kinds of bacteria. There's over 500 kinds of bacteria in the human mouth. So formation of bacterial microcolonies. The cluster of bacteria forms a sessile mushroom, meaning that it's narrow at the base and wide at the top. The bacteria accumulate and the colonies grow primarily through cell division rather than through the attachment of new bacteria. A slime layer protects the bacterial community and helps the biofilm grow. Then the bacterial uh, microcolonies mature. The composition of bacteria changes to a more toxic mix that can potentially harm the body. Um, the biofilm extends into the subgingival region and forms mature biofilm. Following a few days of undisturbed plaque formation, the gingival margin becomes inflamed. Chronological changes in bacterial composition. Um, so we'll talk about this bacteria. Some of this bacteria is innocuous, which means that it's not harmful, and some are pathogenic or virulent, which means that it's capable of causing a disease. Um, you have what's called gram-positive bacteria and gram-negative bacteria. So the bad bacteria that's really harmful is gram-negative. It's modal, which means it moves, and it's anaerobic, which I think that means it can survive without oxygen. The good bacteria, or the one that's not as harmful, is gram-positive. Gram-positive bacteria. It's non-modal, so it can't move, and it's aerobic bacteria and I think that means that it can live it has to live on air so it won't survive if it goes down into the sulcus or periodontal pocket we'll get more into these gram positive is stained purple with crystal violet dye it has a thick single cell so remember that gram positive stains purple Gram-negative stains red because it's bad. The red is a warning. It's negative. It's a very negative bacteria, and it's red because it's a warning. It has a double cell capable of releasing endotoxin and exotoxins, which are harmful. An endotoxin is bound to the bacterial cell wall and released when the bacteria rupture. 
This is also called lysis. Um, endotoxins are also heat stable. An exotoxin is bound to the protein of the bacteria, where endotoxin is bound to the bacteria cell wall, but the exotoxin is bound to the protein of the bacteria and released with filtration of bacterial cultures. This one is less heat stable. Endotoxin is more heat stable. Exotoxin is less heat stable. It, it destroys at half the heat as an endotoxin. So just think exo, it's on the outside, destroy it easier. Aerobic is bacteria that requires oxygen to survive, therefore it is less harmful. Anaerobic is bacteria that cannot survive in the presence of oxygen. So it's bacteria that lives in those periodontally involved pockets. Subgingival biofilm includes more anaerobic and motile bacteria compared to supergingival calculus. And we have faculative anaerobic bacteria, bacteria that can survive with or without oxygen. So those are kind of dangerous. Faculative anaerobic bacteria. So it can survive with or without. Cocci. This is bacterium that has a spherical uh, ovoid or round shape. So cocci is bacteria that is round. And bacillus, this is bacterium that has a rod shape. And spirulum is bacterium that has a spiral shape. Uh, chronological changes in bacterial composition. This is probably really important too. So within the first two days of plaque accumulation, gram-positive cocci bacteria are prevalent. After two to four days of plaque accumulation, gram-positive cocci increase in number and gram-positive rods appear. After four to seven days of plaque accumulation, gram-negative spirochetes and vibrios appear. After seven to 14 days of plaque accumulation, gram-negative anaerobic bacteria duplicate and inflammation begins. So it's gram-negative, it's bad. It's anaerobic, so it doesn't require oxygen. And it inflammation begins. After 14 to 21 days of plaque accumulation, gram-negative anaerobic bacteria are prevalent and gingivitis is visible. So that's gingivitis. Pretty important. The only way to effectively remove plaque is through mechanical removal, which is brushing your teeth. Calculus, however, which is the hardened plaque, it cannot be removed with a toothbrush, so it requires professional attention, i.e. a dental hygienist. Now we're gonna talk about the components of caries formation, which we talked about a little bit in the fluoride section. We have 
the components, the three components, this is going to be a question I can guarantee it, the three components that are needed for the formation of dental caries, fermental carbohydrate, which is the sugar, bacteria, and the tooth structure. Um, the fermentable carbohydrates, nearly all carbohydrates can be broken down and metabolized by microorganisms. Monosaccharides and disaccharides are the most karyogenic. So, of the fermentable carbohydrates, monosaccharides and disaccharides are the most karyogenic. Bacteria synthesize sucrose and other fermentable carbohydrates and produce acids. Now we're going to talk about the bacteria. Streptococcus mutans are mainly responsible for caries formation. Streptococcus mutans are mainly responsible for caries formation. This is very important. Mutans and S. sangui are both involved in the early stages of tooth demineralization. With further progression, S. mutans becomes more predominant. Streptococcus are gram-positive non-modal cocci. Lactobacillus are found in deep curious lesions. They are gram-positive rods. Streptococcus and lactobacillus produce acid and survive in a low pH environment. So this stuff is a little bit different from what we learned on the fluoride section. But just remember, for initiation of caries, you've got to have fermentable carbohydrates. Monosaccharides and disaccharides are the most karyogenic. And streptococcus mutans are mainly responsible for caries formation. Tooth structure, lower pH on the... Tooth surface dissolves hydroxyapatite and phosphates. So that's how the bacteria is able to cause an acidic environment. It lowers the pH and the tooth surface dissolves the hydroxyapatite and the phosphates. So that's how decay occurs. Change in pH and caries formation. The production of acid dissolves in minerals, calcium and phosphate. The pH in the oral cavity drops right after the consumption of the karyogenic food. And the critical pH, which is the pH of the hydroxyapatites in dental structure, start to dissolve. The normal pH in the mouth is 6.2 to 7. That's very important. Know that for boards. 6.2 to 7 is the normal pH of the mouth. The critical pH for enamel demineralization is 4.5 to 5.5. The critical pH for root demineralization is 6.0 to 6.7. Roots demineralize easier than enamel because there's not enamel covering the roots. It's cementum. Um... Toothpaste is considered to be around a pH of 9. So this is really, 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 really important. The normal pH is 6.2 to 7. The 
pH for enamel demineralization is 4.5 to 5.5, and the critical pH for root demineralization is 6.0 to 6.7. And we know that the frequency of how often you're having the carbohydrates feeding the bacteria has a big effect on uh, cavities forming. Um, sticky food also adheres to the surfaces and the crevices better, so it stays for a longer time. So definitely have your patients avoid sticky candy, dried fruit, and etc. And we'll talk about the terminology briefly. A cavity is a hole caused by demineralization of a tooth structure. structure. Cavitation is a process of a cavity formation. So that's cavitation. Curious lesions can be cavitated with a hole or non-cavitated without a hole. So it's a cavity, but it doesn't have to be a hole. A non-cavitated lesion can be different in color and is usually whiter. Demineralization, this is when minerals such as calcium and phosphorus are removed from the tooth structure by acid. So demineralization, the minerals are being removed from the tooth. The calcium and phosphorus minerals are being removed from the, the tooth structure because of the acid. Secondary caries, which are re also called recurrent dental caries, underneath an ex existing restoration. Arrested caries are areas where demineralization has stopped. It's usually darker in color than the original structure. White lesions, subsurface demineralization under the outer layer of the tooth. Smooth in texture. Do not use ultrasonic or sharp instruments on the demineralized areas. Um, caries appear more radiolucent. You can detect them visually if you dry the tooth and use light to detect the darker areas. Use blunt instrument and avoid scratching demineralized areas with sharp, with sharp instruments. Um, you can prevent caries through saliva stimulation because the saliva buffers the acid. And fluoride. Fluoride inhibits bacterial activity and forms fluorapatite on the tooth to remineralize surfaces. Sealants, they close the pits and fissures on the tooth surfaces to prevent retention of food and bacteria. Some types of sealants release fluoride, but not all. And then avoid sticky foods with sugar and starch. Substitute sugar with sugar, alcohol, and xylitol which is found in the sugar-free gum. So now we'll talk about immunity. We have two different kinds, innate immunity, which is natural, and acquired immunity, which is adaptive. So innate immunity is nonspecific defense mechanism present at birth and does not need to learn through exposure to an invader. And then we have acquired, which is the adaptive. Uh, there's four different types of acquired immunity. We have 
naturally active acquired immunity, naturally passive acquired immunity, artificially active acquired immunity, artificially passive acquired immunity. And we'll go through each one. Naturally active acquired immunity is where the patient becomes infected and the body naturally produces antibodies against the antigens. An example is contracting the, seasoning, the seasonal flu and becoming immune to it. So you only get it once for the season. Naturally passive. So naturally active acquired immunity. You're, the patient has whatever it is and the body just naturally produces antibodies against the antigens in it. So the naturally passive acquired immunity Antibodies produced by one individual are passed on to another individual. So it's passive. It is passed on. An example is RH antibodies from a mother to the baby. The next one is artificially active, artificially active acquired immunity. This is a vaccination. It's a vaccination of an antigen in a safe form that helps the body produce antibodies against it. The example is the measles, mumps, rubella, and there's even a flu vaccine. The next one is artificially passive acquired immunity. This is an injection of antibodies. So your body doesn't even have to produce the antibodies. It's, it's just injected into your body. An example is a hepatitis B immunoglobulin injection after an exposure to hepatitis B. So you got exposed to it, you've been injected with an antibody, your body doesn't even have to produce the antibody, it's already injected into you and it's going to fight it off so that you don't get this. So I'm going to go through these one more time, but quickly. Naturally active acquired immunity. Patient becomes infected. The body naturally produces antibodies to fight it off. Naturally passive acquired immunity. This is where an antibody is produced by someone and then passed on to someone else. So just like mother to child. Artificially active acquired immunity is through a vaccination of an antigen in a safe form to help you produce the antibodies yourself. And then the last one is artificially passive acquired immunity, which is like an immunization, but it's the antibodies are straight injected into your body. Your body does not have to produce it. All right, now we'll talk about inflammation. I don't know why this is in micro. We covered it in perio, so it's gonna be in both for as far as we are concerned. So inflammation is the body's defense mechanism to injury. 
There are five classic symptoms of inflammation, all due to increased amount of blood at the site. You have heat, redness, swelling, pain, and loss of function, such as inflammation of a knee prevents the bending of it. Uh, vasodilation immediately follows the initial vasoconstriction in the acute inflammatory process. Mast cells release histamine to vasodilate the blood vessels and allow for maximum number of white blood cells. Each mast cell contains secretory granules, each containing powerful biologically active molecules called mediators. By releasing chemical alarms, such as histamine, mast cells attract other key players of the immune defense system to areas of the body where they're needed. The movement of cells to the site of inflammation in response to chemical stimulus is called chemotaxis. Now we're going to talk about hypersensitivity, which is 100% definitely on the board exam. Immune reaction caused by an immune response to repeated exposure to an antigen. There are four different types. We have immediate hypersensitivity, which is type 1. IgE-mediated immediate hypersensitivity usually begins within minutes of exposure. Reactions include sneezing, itchy eyes, hives, burning skin sensations, etc. Examples are asthma and anaphylaxis attacks. Type 2, antibody-mediated hypersensitivity. Antibodies produced by the immune response bind to antigens on the patient's own cell surfaces. Type 3, immune complex-mediated hypersensitivity. This is the most common immune-mediated diseases. Aggregations of antigens to IgG and IgM antibodies form in the blood and are deposited in various tissues. Cell-mediated, type 4, Hypersensitivity has a delayed response. Usually symptoms from exposure take hours to days to occur, such as an example is contact dermatitis. Autoimmune disease is an abnormal immune response of the body against substances and tissues that are normally present in the body. So in an autoimmune disease, the body essentially turns on the body. Um, repair process, we'll briefly discuss this. The scar tissue formation. The blood flows into the injured tissue and forms a clot. A clot consists of meshwork, structure of fibrin, clumped red blood cells, and platelets. Acute inflammation takes place. Neutrophils rush into the injured tissue and start phagocytosis of foreign substances. Monocytes migrate from the microcirculation into the injured areas as macrophages. Granulation tissue and fibrinous meshwork of the clot is formed. Clot is digested by tissue enzymes and comes off after about a week. Scar and new tissue are formed. And then lastly, the types of repair. Healing by primary intention 
healing with minimum scarring as in a surgical incision. Healing by secondary incision, the edges of the injury are not joined perfectly and granulation tissue is formed. Its raised, uneven border is called a keloid. Healing by tertiary intention, infection occurs at the site of surgical healing. So primary is minimum scarring like a surgical incision. Secondary healing, the edges of the injury are not joined perfectly. Granulation tissue is formed, raised uneven border called a keloid. And then tertiary healing is where an infection occurs at the surgical healing site. Now I'm gonna go over to my Chicago book and read from it a little bit. It's gonna be a little repetitive, but it's a really good review of what we just discussed. Okay, so we'll start out with staining organisms. We have the gram positive and the gram negative. This says that the gram positive stains blue. The other book says it stains purple, but it's gram positive, so like blue and purple are in the same color family. Gram negative is stained red because gram negative is bad. It's got a red warning label on it. Stay away from that. It is bad for you, bad news. Um, so the gram positive cell wall is very thick. It does not block the diffusion of antibiotics. It's vulnerable to penicillins and lysosomes. It has two layers, low lipid content, and no endotoxin. The gram-negative cell wall is very thin. Um, it contains three layers, high lipid content, the outer cell membrane contains endotoxin. The design allows gram-negative cells to block diffusion of substances that attack cell walls, such as penicillins and lysosomes. There's a note on here that says that there's two organisms that are not susceptible to gram staining and therefore require specific considerations. They are mycobacteria and spirochetes. Mycobacteria require a acid fast stain, so no gram staining for that. The causative organism for TB is a bacteria called mycobacterium tuberculosis, and tuberculosis is acquired via airborne transmission. So, Just remember that, <laughs> gram staining doesn't work for mycobacteria, which is the tuberculosis bacteria. And the spirochetes, which are in like nug and nup, they require dark field microscopy. Okay, disease causing organisms. Most disease causing microorganisms are gram negative rods, or gram-negative pleomorphic bacteria. Gram-positive cocci do not form spores and are non-mobile. 
There's a board alert. Alert. It says, in order for most non-mobile microorganisms to invade tissue, the bacteria need to be able to make specific enzymes known as hyaluronidase. Hyaluronidase. The board would like you to know that hyaluronidase is referred to as the spreading factor and that is necessary for invading tissue during the spread of infection. Let's read that again. Board alert. In order for most non-mobile microorganisms to invade tissue, the bacteria need to be able to make a specific enzyme known as hyaluronidase. The board would like you to know that hyaluronidase is referred to as the spreading factor and that it is necessary for invading tissue during the spread of infection. So there's a lot extra on this review for streptococci, and I just don't really feel like all of it pertains to us. I'm not sure why it's on here, but I do feel like it's important to talk about group A streptococci. It says it's causative for such maladies as streptococcal pharyngitis, pyogenic infections, tonsillitis, and scarlet fever and rheumatic fever. So just know that group A streptococci are causative for these conditions um, because the way that they are able to adhere to the pharyngeal epithelium. So just know group A streptococci are causative for streptococcal pharyngitis, pyogenic infections, tonsillitis, scarlet fever, and rheumatic fever. A board alert says rheumatic fever is an inflammatory disease that may develop after an infection with streptococcus bacteria, such as strep throat or scarlet fever, and can involve the heart, joints, skin, and brain. Know that the causative organism for scarlet fever and rheumatic fever is streptococcus group A. Okay, also know that streptococci or S mutans can bind to teeth by producing dextran polysaccharides in the presence of sucrose, also known as glycans. It can produce acid and dental caries. Uh, and it says, board alert, know how streptococcus mutans processes sugar there's four steps but s mutans is not associated with periodontal disease okay s mutans metabolizes sucrose to lactic acid which creates an acidic environment which can demineralize enamel sucrose is also used by s mutans to produce dextrans which allows the strep to adhere to the tooth and add to the volume of plaque, many other sugars, glucose, fructose, lactose, can be digested by S. mutans, but in the end is lactic acid, not dextrans. It is the combination of plaque and acid that leads to dental caries. So when it says, board alert, know how streptococcus mutans processes sugar, it's through... Um, the dental caries process that this happens. 
And like I said again, S. mutans is not associated with periodontal disease. It is only associated with caries. And it wants us to talk about endocarditis. Endocarditis, dental manipulations can release viridans into the bloodstream where they implant on the endocardial surface of the heart, most commonly damaged heart valves, by producing extracellular glycan. Organisms are protected within the resultant vegetative mass. We'll get more into endocarditis when we get to physical diagnosis. Okay, some of these specific bacteria and what type of decay they cause is what we're going to talk about quickly. This, the Chicago book is a little confusing. I feel like um, the student RDH broke it down a little better. So the most common viridans organisms, S. mutans responsible for caries in the pit and fissure form. And it says the caries' most common bug is Lactobacillus acidophilus. But it doesn't initiate it. It's just there, hanging around. Next is S. sobrinus caries, smooth surface caries. S. mitis uh, causes endocarditis. S. sangui is for plaque colonization and endocarditis. S. salivarius colonizes oral tissue. It's 50% of the tongue flora. So we'll talk about that. Streptococcus salivarius is a spherical gram-positive bacteria that coloni which colonizes the mouth in URT of humans a few hours after birth. So that's very important to know that. Streptococci salivarius colonizes the human mouth 50% of the tongue flora, just a few hours after they're born. Um, know that viridian streptococcus are among the most common aerobic organisms implicated in facial cellulitis. That's really important too. Viridian streptococcus are the most common aerobic organisms implicated in facial cellulitis. Next is Streptococcus pneumoniae can be encapsulated with a polysaccharide layer which makes it very resistant and destructive. Staphylococcus, this is generally a harmless component of normal flora, has a powerful arsenal of enzymatic and exotoxin weapons, and it's penicillin G resistant. This is Staphylococcus, is penicillin G resistant, where Streptococcus is not. Staphylococcus is non-mobile, non-spore forming, spherical gram-positive cocci arranged in grape-like clusters, faculative aerobe, which means it can live with or without oxygen. Um, a typical lesion of a staphylococcus is abscess formation. Staphylococcus aureus has significant exotoxins that are coagulase and hyaluronidase. 
produces pigmented compounds called carot carotenoids. Okay, and we'll talk just a second about MRSA. MRSA is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. MRSA is the most resistant disease-causing organism, and vancomycin and Bactrim are often the first antibiotics to be used in the treatment of MRSA. So MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, the most resistant disease-causing organism, and vancomycin and Bactrim are often the first antibiotics to be used in the treatment of MRSA. A gram-positive rod called Clostridum Tentani is probably important to know because it causes lockjaw or tentanus. Uh, normally inhabits superficial layers of soil. Spores are generally dust-borne. So just know that. It's a gram-positive rod. Clostridium tentani causes lockjaw. Um, gram-negative cocci called Neisseria is a causative organism for meningitis and gonorrhea. A gram-negative spiral-shaped organism called spirochete is the common causative organism for syphilis, trombonitosis, Lyme disease, and letospirosis. The reason that spirochetes really stand out to me, and I think it's very important for the board exam, is because it's found in association with NUP and NUG, the necrotizing ulcerative periodontal disease or gingivitis. Uh, you, yeah, spirochetes. Just remember that it's found in association with them. But they want us to know that these gram-negative spiral-shaped organisms called spirochetes are a causative organism for syphilis, something I can't pronounce, Lyme disease, and something else I can't pronounce. So mostly syphilis, Lyme disease, and nugging up. Some specific board-worthy microbes to know. Lactobacillus, we have talked about it a little bit, and it is found in or associated with advanced carious lesions deep in enamel, and are aciduric. So it says, can derive lactic acid from glucose, which creates an acidic environment. So yes, of course, it's going to be found in those curious lesions. And then actinomycoses, or myces, gram-positive pleomorphic rods form a large portion of the oral microflora. Um... And they have been implicated in root caries. Now we'll talk briefly on the growth phases of bacteria, which was not on the student RDH page. Um, phases refer to populations of cells, not individual cells. 
Microbes exhibit four distinct phases of growth. You have lag phase, logarithmic phase, stationary phase, and death phase. The lag phase is where growth is slow at first as bacteria acclimate to their environment. The board alert says know that cellular metabolic activity was not increased during the lag phase. Next is logarithmic phase or exponential phase. Gr growth grows exponentially. That's why it's known as exponential phase along with logarithmic. This is the phase that microorganisms are most prone to break down by antimicrobial agents. This is the stage where you're supposed to give the antibiotics. The third stage is the stationary phase. And it says no net increase or decrease in cell numbers as nutrients are used up and waste products build up. So nutrients go down, waste goes up. And then after the stationary phase ends, the microbes die off in the death phase. Now we're going to talk about the metabolic, me metabolic characteristics of bacteria. It can be classified based on oxygen metabolism. This is a major factor. Molecular oxygen is highly reactive. It can form hydrogen peroxide, superoxide radicals, and hydroxyl radicals. Bacteria possesses three enzymes to break down oxygen products. They are catalase, which breaks down hydrogen peroxide, pyridoxase, which breaks down hydrogen peroxide, and superoxide dismutase, which breaks down the superoxide radical. Now we're going to talk briefly about Prevotella. Prevotella is most often associated with hormonal or pregnancy gingivitis, facial cellulitis, and nup and nug. So that's important. Prevotella, most often associated with pregnancy gingivitis or hormonal, or hormonal gingivitis, facial cellulitis, and nup and nug. Porphyromonas gingivalis possesses an armamentarium of cell surface associated with extracellular activities, which are studied extensively for their virulence potential. Most notably, surface fimbrae, which allows the bacteria to adhere to epithelial and tooth surfaces. This is a very important pathogen for periodontal diseases. And again, it's called Porphyromonas gingivalis. Has surface fimbrae, produces collagenase. Now we're gonna talk about fungus. Candida albicans is the most common fungus encountered in the dental setting and has several unique characteristics. Uh, Candida. Nystatin is used topically to treat oral candidiasis where fluconazole is used systemically to treat oral candidiasis. So nystatin and fluconazole are both used to treat candida albicans. Um, viruses. Viruses must have a host cell for re replication. 
They are composed of a protein core called a capsid surrounding genetic material. And they might they may have an outer lipid bilayer called an envelope, or it may be naked. This goes so deep into detail about stuff that I, I feel like it's just too much. Um, there's a few things, a few more things I'm going to go over, like the Epstein-Barr virus. This is re- frequently referred to as EBV, a member of the herpes virus family and one of the most common human viruses. The board wants you to know that the herpes virus is the causative organism for Epstein-Barr, not retrovirus, rhinovirus, rotavirus, etc. The Epstein-Barr virus is the causative organism for infectious mononucleosis. And it it may be implicated in malignancies such as nasopharyngeal carcinoma and Burkitt's lymphoma. The Epstein-Barr virus is also implicated in oral hairy leukoplakia. And it says virus of special interest, measles, also known as rubella. Uh, The patient will have complex spots. And it spreads via nasopharyngeal secretions, which is like mucus, snot. It can cross the placental border. Has coplic spots, which are small red raised lesions with blue centers in the mouth. The Coxsackie virus is causative organism for herpangina, not the herpes virus. So the Coxsackie virus... Is the causative organism for herpangina. And then you have the varicella zoster virus, which causes chicken pox. And the, in herpes zoster uh, shingles that is made present upon reactivation of the dormant virus. Then we have hepatitis. This is really important. Hepatitis is going to be all over the boards. So, I would suggest you know everything about it. Um, Hepatitis, four RNA hepatitis viruses, hepatitis A, C, D, and E. The surface, hepatitis B surface antigen, HBSAG, is critical because antibodies against the component are protective and it confers confers immunity this i go more into detail in physical diagnosis and it's easier to understand so i'm just gonna put a halt on it and just read this tidbit here hepatitis b vaccine is an example of artificial acquired active immunity and We'll do the serology of hepatitis, uh, hepatitis B. HBSAG is the disease, acute or chronic. These are results, by the way. The anti-HBSAG means that the patient is immune and has no active disease, which is makes sense because HBSAG is the person that has the disease. 
Anti-HBSAG, the patient is immune, has no active disease. HBCAG, it means acute, chronic, or resolving infection. HBEAG means the patient has high infectivity and active infection. Anti-HBEAG means the patient has low infectivity. Okay, so then it says, be sure to familiarize yourself with these other viruses of note for the pathology portion of the National Board Examination. So know these viruses for the pathology portion. Herpes, varicella zoster, cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, mumps, human immunodeficiency virus, human papillomavirus, and the rhinovirus. These are all viruses, and they want us to be able to differentiate between viruses and bacteria. So that's it for that. Now we'll talk about the immune system. The immunity is less than optimal at either end of life. Um, Cell-immediated immunity. We have T cells, which are our defense against infections, especially mycobacterium tuberculosis, viral and fungal, allergic response, graft and tumor rejection, and the regulation of antibody response. Then you have antibody-mediated, which is humoral immunity. This uh, includes B cells and a defense against infection. It opsonizes bacteria, neutralizes toxins, and viruses. And you have the allergic response and autoimmunity. Next is specificity of immune response. Involves recognition, activation, and response. May be natural, which is innate, or acquired, which is adaptive. Natural immunity is non-specific, not acquired from previous antigen exposure, does not improve after exposure, and has no memory. Says host defenses and natural immunity include barriers such as skin, mucous membranes, certain cells such as the natural killer cells, phagocytosis, inflammation, and certain proteins. This includes complement. The complement system is also known as the complement cascade and serves to complement or assist other defense mechanisms such as inflammation, phagocytosis, and pathogen lysis. There are two complement pathways. You have classical, which is an antibody dependent, and alternative, which is spontaneous. Then you have the acquired immunity, which occurs after an exposure. It improves with repeated exposures and mediated by antibodies and T cells. We have long-term memory, and it can be passive or active. Antigens are foreign. They're really small molecular size with a high molecular weight. Um, chemically and structurally complex. Antigenic determinants called epitopes and dosage route and timing of exposure has a lot to do with it.
The cells of the immune system are made up of leukocytes and their granulocytes, lymphocytes, monocytes, and dendritic, dendritic cells produce all produced in the bone marrow. Then you have the T cells that constitute mostly lymphocytes. During the maturation phase, T cells develop specific receptors that allow them to differentiate, sometimes referred to as sensitization. The T helper cells produce cytokines that stimulate macrophages. NK cells, dendritic cells, and other T cells. Some helper T cells turn B cells on so they can make antibodies which circulate to bind antigens. And then you have the types of T cells and I don't really feel like it's important for me to go into those or the B cells. The antibodies are probably, those are probably really important. The immunoglobulins that react specifically with antigens. Uh, there's five classes, the IgG, IgM, IgA, IgD, and IgE. Yeah, we need to know those. Um, let's see. IgG is divalent, predominant AB in the secondary response. It is the only antibody to cross the placenta, capable of activating the classical antibody complement pathway. Then IgM is produced in primary response. I feel like probably the last 15 minutes has been a lot of crap and we don't really need to know all of this stuff. It's too detailed. Some of it is important. Some of it's really important, but not all of it. But I'm going to go ahead and get through the immunoglobulin classes because they are important. Um, I'm not sure where I left off. IgM produced in primary response. Pentamer. The most efficient in agglutination, highest avidity of the IGs because of 10 binding sites. And the, the board tidbit is that IgM is the largest antibody and capable of activating the classical antibody complement pathway. IgA is the main immunoglobulin in secretions, so saliva. Prevents attachment of antigen to mucous membranes. Has J-chain and secretory component. IgD says no known antibody function at this time present in small amounts of serum. IgD is found on the surface of some B cells. Increased levels are associated with chronic infections. IgD, myelomas, and autoimmune diseases. IgE mediates anaphylactic hypersensitivity by binding to mast cells in basophils.
targets contain parasites present in trace amounts in serum, generally. So, IgG, only antibody to cross the placenta, capable of activating the classical antibody complement pathway. IgM is produced in primary response. Um, the largest antibody, IgA, is found in saliva. IgD, no known function, it's just found on the surface of some B cells. IgE is for allergies, histamine. It says anaphylactic hypersensitivity by binding the mast cells and basophils. So, I think that's it for that. And then the last thing on here is hypersensitivity reactions. So, type 1 anaphylactic or immediate, the IgE antibody is produced by antigen, binds to mast cells and basophils, it says histamine, IgE induces degranulation and releases a release of mediators such as histamine, requires a previous exposure to an allergen. So type 1 anaphylactic is IgE. And those mast cells release histamine and pallor is not a sign of histamine release. Type 2 cytotoxic antigens on a cell surface combine with antibody leads to complement mediated lysis. Examples include RH and transfusion reactions um, and that's IgE. Type 2, cytotoxic IgE. Type 3, I'm sorry, that was IgG. Type 3 is immune complex. Complement is activated. The release of lysosomal enzymes cause tissue destruction, and that's IgG as well. Type 4 is delayed. Um... Release of cytokines upon next exposure induces inflammation and activation of macrophages, which release mediators, cell versus antibody mediated, and then the example is the TB skin test. And the last thing on here, autoimmune disorders. Most are antibody mediated. Genetic predisposition is common, much more common in females usually more than one cause, increased incidence with age, and then examples include insulin-resistant diabetes, myasthenia gravis, which is droopy eyelids and double vision. You have Graves' disease, systemic lupus, erythematosus, rheumatoid arthritis, and scleromedoma. And that's it. That's all they have in here for... Uh, micro, but I do feel like this is way, way more than what we need. So I actually went through and I do have a shorter version from the Chicago book that is 
the beginning of it's great, but then the middle gets a little confusing. So I did actually make a shorter version that made more sense to be able to listen to it. So if you want to fast forward through parts of the last 30 minutes, you can. This is a one-page shortened version of that. And I should be able to get through all of it in like 10 minutes, maybe. So the first part is the formation of the dental plaque, which is the pellicle initial attachment, formation of the bacterial microcolonies, and the maturation of the bacterial microcolonies that we talked about previously. Um, innocuous bacteria in plaque is not harmful. Pathogenic or virulent is bacteria capable of causing disease. Then you have gram-negative and gram-positive. Gram-negative modal anaerobic bacteria is harmful. Gram-positive is non-modal and aerobic bacteria, so it's not near as bad. And then you have faculative anaerobic bacteria, which can survive with or without oxygen. Um, carries prevention. Fluoride forms fluorapatite on the tooth to remineralize surfaces. And hydroxyapatite is the inorganic composition of the tooth. The CA10 parentheses PO4 parentheses 6 parentheses OH parentheses 2. So CA10 PO4 6 OH2 is the tooth. Um, you have immunity. Simplified, <laughs> you have innate, natural immunity that's present at birth, and then you have the acquired immunities that are adaptive, naturally active acquired immunity. The patient becomes infected, the body naturally produces antibodies, and the example is contracting the flu and becoming immune to it. Then naturally passive acquired immunity, where the antibodies produced by one individual are passed on to another, such as the RH antibodies from mother to child. Then the artificially active acquired immunity, vaccination of an antigen in a safe form that helps the body produce antibodies against it, such as measles, mumps, flu, vaccine. Artificially passive acquired immunity, such as the injection of antibodies, Hep B injections after an exposure to Hep B. And then the immunizations that we must have as healthcare individuals is Hep B, the flu shot, measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella zoster. Um, inflammation is the body's defense to injury. You have five classic symptoms calor, which is heat, rubor, which is redness, tumor, which is swelling, dolor, which is pain. Loss of function, where um, like if you hurt your knee, it won't work anymore. Vasodilation immediately follows vasoconstriction in the acute inflammatory process. Mast cells release histamine to vasodilated blood vessels to allow for maximum number of white blood cells. And the sequence of events, you have a brief vasoconstriction of small vessels, 
then vasodilation of the same vessels within seconds. Hyperemia occurs via increased blood flow due to vasodilation. Then you have an increased vascular permeability that occurs. Uh, transudate leaks out of the vessels into the tissues. Increased blood viscosity occurs. Decreased blood flow occurs. Margination and pavementing occurs due to the movement of white blood cells to the vessel wall. Um, then immigration of white blood cells occurs. Movement of PMNs into tissues via increased permeability and margination, pavementing. Further increased vascular permeability occurs. So executate now enters the tissue causing an edema via PMN immigration. And then phagocytosis occurs in the injured tissue via PMNs. Then we'll talk about hypersensitivity and then the repair process and we're done. Hypersensitivity, immune reaction caused by an immune response to repeated exposure to antigen type 1, immediate hypersensitivity, immediate, begins within minutes of exposure. Reactions are sneezing, itching eyes, burning skin, etc. Asthma and anaphylaxic attacks. Type 2 is antibiotic. Antibody-mediated hypersensitivity, antibodies produced by the immune system or the immune response, bind to antigens on the patient's own cell surfaces. Type 3, immune complex-mediated hypersensitivity, which is the most common, immune-mediated diseases, aggregations of antigens to IgG and IgM antibodies form in the blood and are deposited into various tissues. Type 4, Cell-mediated hypersensitivity has a delayed response. Usually, symptoms take hours to, to days to, uh, to show up. And then autoimmune diseases is an abnormal immune response of the body against things normally present in the body. And then lastly is the repair process. Scar tissue. A clot consists of fibrin, clumped RBCs, and platelets. During inflammation, neutrophils rush in and start phagocytosis. Monocytes migrate to the site as the macrophages. Granulation tissue and fibrinous meshwork of the clot is formed. Clot is ingested by enzymes and, and scab falls off in about a week. Scar and new tissue is formed. And then you have the three types of repair, primary, secondary, and tertiary. Primary is healing with minimum scarring, such as a surgical excision. Uh, secondary is the edges of the injury are not joined perfectly. Granulation tissue is formed. It, the edges are raised, uneven, and it's called a keloid. And then tertiary is an infection that occurs at the site of a surgical healing. And that is it for microbiology. And hopefully after we pass this board's exam, we never have to see or think or know anything at all about microbiology ever again.